is the final chapter of the book. And what we find here in the final chapter of the book is a list of moral qualities that ought to mark every member of the church. You see, as members of God's kingdom, we are now called to live by God's standard. You see, in light of everything that we have seen throughout the book of Hebrews, it's, it's essential for us to recognize that this list of moral commands does not appear in a vacuum. No, this list of commands comes after this long, drawn-out depiction of all Christ has done for His church. Right? So we are called to live moral lives, not in order to earn God's favor, but because of what He has done for us. And that's significant for us to realize. Because through Christ, we have been brought into God's kingdom. As we saw at the end of chapter 12, we have been brought into God's unshakable eternal kingdom. And now, as, as individuals who live in that kingdom, we are called to serve God. And if we want any understanding on how we are to serve God, we need to look to God for instruction. We need to look to the ruler of this kingdom in order to understand how we are to live in this kingdom. And that's because we live in a society with a broken moral compass. We cannot look to the culture around us for answers regarding morality. Think about it for a moment. The society we live in is essentially incapable to make moral claims with any sort of consistency. Think about the inherent contradictions that exists between the Me Too moment, uh, the Me Too movement that is simultaneously standing alongside a pornography culture. How in the world are we supposed to come to a, a consistent morality if we're looking towards the culture for it? I mean, do we as a society care about the subjugation of women? As a society, do we care about sexually objectifying women? I mean, when you look at the Me Too movement, you would think so. And yet, as this concern for respecting women constantly increases, the pornography industry exponentially grows in the same, the same atmosphere. This is the same culture, the same society. These two things coexist. While people all over the world are, are calling for the correct treatment of women, sexualization continues in Hollywood on the movie screens. So which is it? Do we care about this or not? Are we as a society concerned with the dignity and respect that we ought to show women or not? Well, a society with no legitimate underlying standard for morality is bound to contradict itself essentially at every turn. And so we cannot look to the culture for a moral compass. If we're called to live as moral individuals walking along in God's kingdom, we can't look to the society to understand where our morality ought to come from. We need to look somewhere else. We need to look to the king of this kingdom in order to understand what our moral responsibilities are. 
We have an ethical standard as Christians that's not rooted in the people around us or in the culture at large, rather in Christ. And it's communicated to us through Scripture. And so as we come to the final chapter of our book, here we see that the author is depicting what a life of ethic looks like in this unshakable kingdom. Here is how we are to live in God's domain. So let's begin by reading our passage. Again, we're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 6 this evening. So verse 1 of chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison, as those in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So the first ethical command that we find in this passage is one towards love. Hebrews here is is providing an explanation of what morality looks like in God's kingdom by calling us to love one another towards brotherly love. Remember, last week we were called to serve God with gratitude because of what he has done. We were called to live thankful lives. And here is what a thankful life looks like. Love. A thankful life. Life is committed to God's greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself and to love God. Amanda, this summer, was at a wedding, and she began to feel uneasy about the message that was shared by the, the person officiating the wedding. It was, a, it was a woman who was overseeing the wedding, and she was giving a speech on the importance of love. And she mentioned love was the reason this ceremony was taking place. Because these two people had this remarkable feeling, marriage is happening. And it was at this point that Amanda began to sense, this message seems a little off base. First off, we don't get married simply because we feel love towards someone else. And second... More importantly, in Scripture, love is not defined merely as a feeling. You know, I, I think John Mayer is, is pretty clueless in regards to biblical love. It's just my guess, but with his history with women, I think it says as much. But he does at least have a more helpful understanding of love than the woman who was officiating this this wedding, right? He has this song, and the very first line is, love is a verb, it's not a thing. Or as he says, love ain't a thing, or it ain't a thing, right? Love is a verb, it ain't a thing. It's not appropriate English. But anyways, it, it, it's, a, it's a, he's on to something, right? I mean, throughout scripture, we see over and over again that biblical love is not summed up in emotion 
or in a feeling. Love is not merely a state of mind. I mean, you could say emotion is involved. You can say feelings are involved, but that is not the essence of love. No, throughout the pages of Scripture, love is first and foremost described as an action. Now, before we go any further, I just I want to clarify. We're not necessarily talking about romantic love yet. It's coming when we talk about honoring marriage. But right now we're talking about brotherly love. Brotherly love, if you want a definition, is the proactive pursuit of another person's good through the determined sacrifice of your time, your willpower, and your energy. Let me put it another way. You love someone when you have resolved to seek that person's good. And you will do whatever it takes in order to make sure that happens. To love your neighbor is an action, right? It is a choice that you are making to do something for that person's good. This is something that we have to choose to partake in. It requires time. Love requires energy. It requires sacrifice. 1 John 3.16. It's kind of funny. Not John 3.16. 1 John 3.16 says this, But by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for others. You see, Jesus is the perfect example of love because of what he did, not merely because of how he felt. He laid down his life for his creation in order to redeem a people for himself. Now, a much more known verse, John 3.16. Here, too, we see that primarily love is an action Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How do you understand the word so in this verse? God so loved the world. Now, at first this might sound controversial, but I assure you it's not. Let me tell you what this word does not mean. He does not mean here that God loved the world with so much feeling and passion that he sent his son. That's not what the word so means here. Believe it or not, in the original language, this isn't even debatable. This is not even debatable. This means that God loved the world in this way. It's not debatable. In the original language, the verse means God loved the world in this manner. He sent his son. And here's why that's significant. Because love is not defined by God's feelings, but by his actions. Love is an action that God has decided to do. It's an action that we decide to do, and we need to get this. Because when we do, it's going to change the way that we approach love. I mean, maybe you have an unquenchable emotional resistance towards someone. Think of that person. 
and you feel as though you will never be able to love that person. You feel like you will never be able to overcome those intense feelings and emotions and passions bound up in your heart in order to express love for this person, right? How can I fulfill this command to show brotherly love? Maybe someone has hurt you in the past. Maybe that person has slandered you or abused you or hurt someone that you love. Is God calling you to have a certain feeling towards that person who hurt you? Well, if you think that love is limited to an emotion, well, then it's going to be pretty hard for you to fulfill this command to have an overwhelming feeling of attraction towards someone who abused you. So we need to correct this misunderstanding of love. Love is first and foremost an action. So you can show acts of kindness towards your abuser or slanderer even when your passions tell you, I don't want to do that. You can lay down your, your emotional hindrance towards that person and show them love. You can put aside your resistance towards that person and show them kindness. And so with that in mind, let's move forward in the passage because here we find a long description of what brotherly love looks like. Love, brotherly love is, is the archway through which all of these other commands go. Remember, love is the, the first and greatest commandment. And that's how Hebrews functions as well. Hebrews 13 here. He throws out the main idea to have brotherly love and then he shows different ways in which we can portray that. And po- let me just point out, these are not feelings. These are actions. So here's what it means to show brotherly love in God's kingdom. You want to show love, you need to show hospitality. We find this in verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby, some have entertained angels unaware. Um, Now, before we go into what it means to show hospitality, I think maybe you sense this. We need to know what in the world is he talking about. What is he saying when he said, some have entertained angels unaware. It's like, it seems like a pretty straightforward passage, and then he just throws that in there, and you're like, oh, that's kind of bizarre. So Hebrews here is most likely referring back to the story of Genesis, where Abraham and Lot showed hospitality to these three strangers, and then later realized that these were angelic beings. The story begins in Genesis 18 when Abraham is visited by these three traveling men. And Abraham shows them hospitality by allowing them to rest while he goes and and gets them water and gets them food. So he has Sarah bake them bread. And Abraham goes out and he slaughters an entire cow for these three men. (laughs) I mean, that is uh, extensive hospitality. It's three men. I, I don't know if you've ever, like, purchased a cow, but an entire cow has a lot of meat on it. I mean, this was a a huge sacrifice. Well, these three men then go and travel to Sodom. And then when they arrive, they come to the courtyard of the city. They arrive in in the, the city square and they wait for someone to show them hospitality. 
This is in chapter 19 of Genesis. In fact, this is, this is actually, I want to take a moment just to explain this. In fact, this is important because in, in Scripture, the literal definition of hospitality is to welcome in a stranger. And so in biblical times, what would happen is individuals would enter into a city, they would go to the city square, and they would wait for a resident of that town to invite them in, to stay for the night. And so Lot, remember he's Abraham's nephew, he lived in Sodom. And so when these men come into the town, Lot shows them hospitality. And this is where the story gets strange. These were not merely men. And soon enough, Lot begins to realize this. It turns out these were angelic beings who had come to Sodom in order to bring judgment upon this town because it was such a wicked city. And proof of the wickedness residing in that city is the fact that when these men show up, a bunch of, a bunch of guys from this town surround Lot's house because they want to rape these, these three men. And Lot realizes these are angels when, when these men blind everyone in the town and then looks to, Lot, looks to Lot's family and says, get out of the town, we are about to destroy this city. And that's exactly what happens. Lot leaves the city and these angels rain fire and brimstone down upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And the entire city is destroyed. So Hebrews here is reflecting on this story and making the case that maybe you too will show hospitality to someone only to find out that these are angels about to destroy your entire town. Obviously not. That's not what he has in mind. What he has in mind is that in the early church, we as a church, right, were called to show hospitality. The early church was called to show this sort of hospitality because missionaries and church leaders would travel throughout the ancient world and they would need people to host them. And so that's what the church members would do often. They would host these evangelists traveling throughout the world in order to see to the advancement of the gospel. That's the context that this passage was written in. Use your home so that you can see the gospel advance. Open up a bedroom for a traveling missionary or a traveling uh, evangelist. So, how might we today show hospitality in our context? How might we welcome in strangers into our midst? It's an important question because people don't typically show up like in downtown Brentwood and just wait there for someone to come and like invite them into their home. Right? That's not a thing. It, at least I don't think it is. But we also have an issue here because for many of us in this room, we don't have homes. Like, How are we going to invite in the stranger? I don't have a home. Well, hospitality in our day and age, simply put, means that you utilize your God-given resources to welcome in strangers and outsiders. What resources do you have in order to welcome others in? Maybe you do have a home so that you can invite outsiders into that home and, and make them feel welcome in that space. But maybe you don't. But that is okay. Hospitality looks different at every stage of life. And now there's much we can say here, but I want to focus specifically on the importance of welcoming in the stranger 
the outsider to our community here at Golden Hills or, or here in Kairos? Right? How can we show hospitality in the context of our church? Well, first off, let me point out that the church is not a gathering of cliques. It's not a social club. And we need to get that in our mind if we're going to welcome in the stranger. Because you don't come here in order to isolate yourselves into little subgroups of people that are just like you. That's not the purpose of the church. The church is remarkably and intentionally diverse. God has formed it that way. And this means there will be people in our midst that we are called to welcome into our church even though they are remarkably different than we are. And this also means that we should be going out of our way to welcome people into our midst, whether it's here at Kairos or here in the church. That's the point of our connections team, actually. Our connections team is intended to make people feel welcome here. So if you're looking for somewhere to serve, that's a great place to serve. Yet I want to point out that even if you're not on the connections team, you should go up and introduce yourself to people that you do not know or to unfamiliar faces, right? Even if you're not on the connections team, you should have conversations with people visiting our ministry. You don't have to be on the connections team to invite someone new to in and out after Kairos. Right? That, that's not a thing. Any of you can do that. In fact, you are commissioned to do that by passages like this one. Now, before we move on, I want to show why we are to exhibit hospitality. Remember, we show hospitality to others. We invite in strangers into our midst specifically because God has shown hospitality to us. God has welcomed us into his family. Sinners like us, he has made into his children. God went out of his way to welcome in strangers. He sacrificed in order to welcome strangers. Remember, Christ shed his blood in order to make those who were far off his brothers and sisters. And so, what we can take from this is that hospitality should be costly. It should be uncomfortable at times. It should take effort at times. We ought to go out of our way to show this type of love, to welcome in the strangers. Next, in verse 3, as we continue in our passage, we see another aspect of kingdom living here. Here we are called to remember the prisoner. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Here we are called to remember those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. So we have to ask, first off, what does it mean? What does the author of Hebrews intend when he says, remember these people? I don't think he means this in the most literal sense. Just call to mind. 
every once in a while those in prison and you're good. You're fulfilling this passage. That's not what's going on here. Hebrews is calling us to action. This is an exhortation to care for those in prison, to care for those who are being persecuted for the sake of Christ. It's important that we understand that in the first century, the state did not care for prisoners. Paul was not in a penitentiary system like the ones that we think about. When we think of a a prison or a jail, it's not what was going on. He wasn't getting three meals a day. He wasn't getting his, his clothing washed on a regular basis. He did not get a, a bed with a pillow and sheets. Right? These sorts of luxuries had to be provided by loved ones. And often, the church was the loved one able to provide those things for the prisoner. Remember in Philippians What's this circumstance in Philippians? Paul is in prison and he's writing this church, thanking them because they brought him gifts while he was in prison. They were addressing his needs as he was in this jail in Rome. This is what we read in chapter 4, verse 18. Here's how he essentially ends the letter. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. It's a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So Epaphroditus was a representative for the Philippian church who went all the way to Rome from Philippi in order to bring Paul supplies so that he could survive in this church. They provided the funds and the supplies needed to survive while in prison. So again, how can we fulfill this command? We don't live in a culture where we have friends being dragged off to prison and then not being given any food or or clothing. That's not what's going on. At least I don't think it is. If, If that's the case, you should probably let someone know about that. Typically, in our midst, people are treated fairly well in prison. And more than that, people aren't dragged to prison for their faith. So how can we help the persecuted and the prisoner now? Well, first off, let me encourage you to dedicate your prayers for those who are in chains. Because just, just because that's not happening here in America, that is happening abroad. A few weeks ago, we prayed about what was going on in China, where the the communist uh, authorities there are cracking down severely on the churches. We can pray for those who are being persecuted in substantial ways for the the name of Christ. And I want to point out here um, a couple of resources. One in particular, it's the Voice of the Martyrs. If you haven't heard of this, it's a great uh, online database that helps you to pray specifically for Christians who are being uh, persecuted right now in the church. So even today, I I brought up a long paragraph to read, but because of time, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to encourage you to go to the Voice of the Martyrs where you can read about uh, these individuals. And it's actually, it's more than just a website that gives you things to pray about. It's also um, 
an organization that you can fund families who are suffering because of persecution. So in a lot of these countries where you have a, a father who's a pastor and that individual is put in jail, now there's an entire family left to struggle. And so there's through, through this organization, you can help provide for those needs. And I also want to point out here that we should be willing to partner with those in our midst who are suffering, maybe not to the point of shedding blood, but there are people in our midst who are suffering at some level or another. For example, there are those who lose family support and they lose friendships because of the fact that they turn to Christ. That's, that's a simple reality, even in our midst. There are people in that situation. And so it's, it's helpful to partner with those people. Invite them into your midst. Show hospitality to those who have lost, lost friendships and, and lost family relations for the name of Christ. So, let's keep moving for the sake of time. The next aspect of this kingdom ethic to which we must hold fast is found in verse 4. As members of Christ's kingdom, we hold marriage in high esteem and we keep the marriage bed undefiled. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. As a church, we are commissioned to dignify marriage and to pursue purity. And this is especially important in light of the way the culture treats marriage and the culture treats purity. As of 2018, the divorce rate in the United States is between 40 and 50%, and that's according to the American Psychological Association. So this is not just some random survey. And apparently, the rate in California is at 60%. Our culture does not honor marriage. And I want to point out that the divorce rate would be far higher if it were not for the fact that our, our culture has become so hardened towards the entire idea of marriage that people decide to just live together unmarried. When they break up, it's not as messy. Why risk the complications of marriage when you can just live together? Why run the risk of all the hassles associated with divorce when you can just share the bedroom without sharing a last name? Yet as Christians, that is not our calling. We are called to honor marriage as a commitment until death do part. As Christians, we are called to honor the marriage bed. And that means that we save ourselves for marriage. This means that we resist the temptation to sleep with one another until we have committed to one another. This is another way to show brotherly love. You are not loving your brother or your sister in Christ when you decide to defile the marriage bed with that individual. If he is not willing to commit his life to you, why would you be willing to commit your body to him? Do you see that? If he is not willing to wait for you, he does not love you. 
I don't care what comes out of his mouth. Instead, he is objectifying you into his own personal sex object. You defile the marriage bed by getting into that bed before you have the title married. It's as simple as that. And I want to point out here that the marriage bed is not only defiled by outright physical adultery. Believe it or not, pornography is as powerful as adultery when it comes to corrupting the marriage bed. In fact, it may be even more powerful to do so. That's because it offers different situations to partake in. Different locations, different women, different hair colors, right? Anything that your imagination desires, you can find it on a screen. You can run wild in your thoughts. It's always something new. It's always something unique. And that's categorically different from the marriage bed. Let's all recognize pornography is adultery. Jesus says as much in Matthew 5 when he tells you that even to think of a woman for lust, with lust for her in your heart is to commit adultery. So if you want to make sure to defile the wedding bed, indulge in pornography. Because those images will without a doubt corrupt your view of sex. They will cause you to view your future spouse as a sex object instead of as a child of God whom you must love. Now, women, if you want a man to treat you like a sex object rather than as a child of God, watch pornography and behave the way you see those women behaving on the screen. The way to find love is not to pretend to be one of those women that you see. Instead, commit yourself to a man who is unwilling to corrupt his mind with the poison of pornography. Now, I'm not going to make many qualifications by these next couple of points, and I don't really apologize for that. I I do really mean this. Guys, did you hear what I just said? I just said that no woman in the right mind ought to commit herself to you if you are indulging in pornography. I mean that. If you have questions, come talk to me, but I'm not really going to qualify that all that much. Just going to leave it there. That may be hard to hear, but it is true. If you commit yourself to a woman while at the very same time you are committed to this plethora of women on the screen and your wife finds out, which she will, it will crush her. The weight of knowing that you are being constantly compared to an airbrushed supermodel, what a burden for a woman. The weight of knowing that you are being neglected for an airbrushed supermodel. That is crippling to a woman. To place such a burden on your wife, there's no words for it, but it's unfair, it's unloving, it's deplorable. 
Show your spouse love by putting aside pornography now. Now, before you enter into the marriage covenant. Let's overcome the corrupting power and the corrupting nature of that industry. And to do so, one thing we need to do is understand just how damning it actually is. It will ruin your relationships with the opposite sex. It will stain and spoil your marriage by corrupting your mind. More than that, look at the end of this verse. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. This is no light matter. To overcome sexual immorality, we need to come to, the, to grips with just how serious this is. And yet we cannot overcome sexual sin by merely understanding its damning power. We also need to understand the immensity of God's grace to overcome such sins. Because he, is, he has got grace plentiful at his side and he's willing to give it to you. God graciously saves the sexually immoral. And we find such a helpful verse in 1 Corinthians 6 in regards to this. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Sounds pretty familiar to Hebrews 13, right? But look at the very next verse. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And such were some of you. You were the sexually immoral. You were the adulterer. You were those who practiced homosexuality. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Our God graciously forgives and offers the gift of freedom. Hebrews 6, you are no longer slaves of your sin if you are in Christ. There is hope of overcoming even the strongest of temptations. There is hope to live out the ethics of God's kingdom. And that hope is not found in yourself. It's found in Christ who graciously gives you the strength you need to fight against such temptations. So if you feel the weightiness of this call in Hebrews 13, look to Christ because he offers the grace that you need for forgiveness and the grace you need for strength. Now, we come to the final aspect of these kingdom ethics in verses 5 and 6. Here we are called to trust God's provisions. Verse 5 chapter 13 of Hebrews. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
Now this too, believe it or not, is a way to show brotherly love. Remember, love is the overarching command here that ties everything that we find in this passage. Now, when we look at how trusting God for financial provision is a form of brotherly love, we we need to pause and, and figure this out. How is it that that brotherly love is related to trusting God when it comes to our finances. Well, look what he says here in verse 5. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. Do not love your money. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. So the love of money is an antithesis to brotherly love. These are opposites. If you're going to devote your heart to the love of others, then you need to rid your heart of all competing interests. And let me point out that the love of money is a remarkably selfish endeavor. To love money implies that you have set your affections, not on the good of others, but on your own good, on your own pleasures, on your own desires and your own prosperity. In this way, the love of money is is quite similar to sexual immorality. Both cases, you lose all sight of the interests of others. You're solely consumed with what you want, with what benefits you. Greed will certainly stand in the way of brotherly love. If your resources are going to be used for the good of others, then you must place the interests of others above yourself. If you're going to show genuine hospitality, if you're going to show love for a prisoner, then you must turn your attention away from yourself and towards others. And in order to do this, we must have a profound realization that God will care for us when we do so. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we reply, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. And let me just point out that this is a difficult area of the country to fulfill what we see here. It's so expensive to live here. And yet... We're surrounded by wealth, just accumulations of wealth that are hard to even fathom at times. And so we begin by asking God to help us, help us pay my bills, like help me pay rent. I can't even afford the home I'm living in. And yet all the while, as we're stressing over our bills, we're surrounded by wealth, right? Maseratis and Teslas driving to and from their million dollar homes. And it's easy in that moment to transition from this heart of worry, God, where am I going to get the money to pay my rent, to a heart of greed. I want that. God, help me survive. Quickly turns into, God, I want that car. I want that house. I'm not satisfied with what you've given me. See, often the love for money begins with the crippling worry that I must take care of myself. And eventually, though, that worry will 
find itself acquiring more and more money and only find itself more and more stingy. And so we need to fight this battle at the outset. We need to place our trust and dependence in the sovereign God who cares for us when we're trying to find a home, trying to to find money for rent. He's willing to take care of us and he's proved it to us in the most profound of ways, right? He's cared for us spiritually and spiritual matters by sending his son to us. Why would we doubt him that he's going to provide for us in order to pay rent, right? He died for us. God, why, why, why would we doubt him? So fighting anxiety now by trusting in God's provision for your life now and by doing this, you're actually going to prevent your heart from growing more and more obsessed with the accumulation of wealth and the advancement of your own pleasures. We can trust God. We can trust that he is going to provide. He is good, right? So as we conclude, let's remind ourselves that we get to serve our king. All of this is giving us insight on how we can serve the king in his kingdom. And now we get to serve him with gratitude in his domain for all that he has done. Let's pray. God, we know that here, these are, these are weighty words for us to take in. We know it's challenging at times to hear the weightiness of what your word says. And yet, you provide. You care for us. No matter what the need is, whether it's a spiritual need, like the need of forgiveness, or whether it's a spiritual need, like the need for strength, or whether it's a physical need, money, you provide, you take care of us. We can trust you and we can depend on you. And so I pray that you'd give us the faith to do so. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen, would you guys stand with us?